good story. And yet, how many times have you heard somebody make the comment like this? You know, it's not the Garden of Eden now. And of course, that's true, isn't it? The fact that the world as we know it today is different from as it's described in Genesis chapter 2, of course, doesn't mean that Genesis chapter 2 didn't actually happen and doesn't mean that God didn't intend it to be like that. But we have to live with the consequences of Genesis chapter 3. But that's not my subject today. Genesis chapter 2 is. So I'm talking about life as God intended it to be. And I hope this helps you here in the church and those who are also listening online. In my devotional this week, and I forget which day of the week it was, but I read this. You're most likely in the minority as a follower of Jesus once you step out of your front door each morning. But don't worry, it's minorities who end up transforming situations. If God is with you, he makes you the majority. I think we live in a world where all of us as people that follow Jesus are dissatisfied with what we see around us. And our question is, can we do anything about it? And the answer is yes. The minority that Jesus began with became the majority that changed the Roman world. And changed the Roman world completely in its understanding of what it means to be human. And as human beings, what it means to engage in relationship one with another and an intimate relationship, one with another, male and female and marriage and so forth. The latest census figures in our nation actually demonstrate now that for the first time since records began, those who say that they have a Christian faith are in the minority in England. It's now 49% rather than anything over 50%. It's never been under 50% previously. And this week in General Synod there was a debate which I binge-watched. I'm not sure whether many my generation binge-watch, but actually I did, and I did because uh, many of my friends were involved in that debate, and the future of the Church of England hangs in the balance at the moment, and I believe if this minority, minorities we are in the Church of England, loses its understanding, historic understanding, biblical and worldwide understanding, of what it means to be human and the place of sexuality our sexuality and marriage within that context, then the, the situation in our world will get worse and worse. For those who... The, the, the resolution was actually passed by a majority of 58% to 42%, but if you strip the bishops out, who basically voted en bloc for the motion, then actually amongst both clergy and lay people the margin was very, very small. In other words, not only a slight majority voted for a change. The change was that although, apparently, we are still sticking to the historic doctrine of marriage, we're actually now going to provide for the blessing of same-sex couples within churches. So we appear now to be saying one thing, but doing another. And those who went for the motion have actually applauded it, saying, well, at least now we're on the road to same-sex marriage. We'd have liked to have gone faster, but we know where we're going, and before long, everything will change. Had I been in Synod, and actually, to be honest, I thank God that I've never had to be there, I would have voted against the change, because I believe it's as seismic as the earthquakes we've seen in Syria and Turkey and it will bring death and destruction into people's lives. In my understanding, 
the motion reflected a conformity to the culture of our society rather than a conformity to the holiness that Jesus both modelled as the most pure and perfect human being that's ever lived and to what he's taught, the Christians have historically taught thereafter. I believe that God has a better story and a better offer to humanity than anything that any culture has ever offered. And the story is the story of the Bible. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2, but I just want to put it in context, first of all, of the whole sweep of Scripture. And even as I do so, I've probably already touched on some nerves for some people. I'm aware that some even here will have experienced terrible pain in human relationships, in their marriages, abuse, separation, divorce, consequent difficulties of raising children, and then possibly also the disappointment of children have not come up to know and love the Lord Jesus and have adopted a different understanding of human identity and practice of their sexuality. I'm also aware that many of us will have family and friends who identify as LGBTQIA, and they're personally caught in a trap of not being sure how to express their continuing love to someone who has such a different view of what it it means to be made in the image of God than they have. And some, therefore, have changed their views in order to maintain their relationship. The sweep of the Bible. Let's look at it with these five headings. Creation. Wonderful paradise. The fall, chapter 3, the story of next week. The work of God's enemy, the decision of human beings to step outside of God's will, the terrible consequences that came from it. The rest of the Bible is the story of the conflict, of people trying to know God and serve God in the, against the backdrop of the enemy constantly trying to destroy their lives. Salvation into human history steps from heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, a new beginning. It's through the modeling of life as it was meant to be lived, the remodeling of life as it was meant to be lived, his dying upon the cross to give us the chance to die to our old life, his resurrection offering us the opportunity of a brand new start. God's victory over the enemy is won over our sin and all the consequences of it. And the Pentecostals would say, Hallelujah, thank you Jesus. There follows for every disciple of Jesus Christ, sanctification, the indwelling Holy Spirit, remodeling our thinking, our longings and our behavior such that we conform to the image of the second Adam, Jesus. God's grace at work in us. And then finally, the trouble will end when Jesus returns and a new heaven and a new earth where God's kingdom is fully established forever. And you know how the Bible ends, don't you? Come, Lord Jesus, come. That's what we long for when God restores what he originally created to all that he intended. That's the big sweep of the Bible. And week by week, uh, Sunday by Sunday, both in church and in our connect groups, we try to dig deeper into our understanding of it. And the little passages only really make sense against the big picture. So here we are in Genesis chapter 2 today. 
And I've got five points which don't have equal weight, you'll be pleased to hear, if I get stuck on one of them. The, the first one is obedience to God is the key to human freedom. Everybody wants to be free. The question is, what does freedom, to be fully human, really look like? You are to eat the fruit, eat the fruit, sorry, you are to f- free to eat from any tree in the garden, says God, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you will certainly die. There seems to be a limit, limitation placed on human freedom by God, even to Adam in the garden. Why is that? We are not the principal owners of the world in which we live. We're not the masters of the universe. We're created by God to relate to God and in relationship with God to care for the world that he's created. And in relationship with God, we learn to treat each other as human beings in the way that he himself loves human beings. And in order to do that, at the center of the garden, he places some trees. One is the tree of life, which is actually the symbol of paradise. And the tree of life is spoken of a number of times in the Bible. It's spoken of again in Revelation chapter 2, looking towards the return of Jesus. It says, to the one who is victorious, the one who endures, the one who keeps following me, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Paradise, paradise, paradise. Uh, And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's this tree that Adam is told that he must not eat eat from, for if he does, he will surely die. Adam is created a living being by God breathing into him. Interesting. Breath, Holy Spirit, Bible scholars are immediately thinking the same. And real Bible scholars are further than that thinking of what happens consequent to the fall and Jesus comes and Jesus says, to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again by water and the spirit. Being born of water is when your mother's waters break and you're born. Being born of the spirit is when the Holy Spirit breathes resurrection life of Jesus into you. You're born at that moment again, born of the water and the spirit. We only are fully human living beings if we're living in relationship with God. If we distance ourselves from him, if we disobey him, if we turn our back on him, if we go our own way, we will surely die. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the symbol of, are you prepared to obey me? Are you prepared to live in relationship with me? Are you going to live your life to seek to please me. You know, in any loving relationships, the issue is, am I really living for myself or am I living to please my spouse? If my spouse says to me, please do not pick your nose in public, and I continue to do so, will she be pleased with me? Now, a trivial example, but it illustrates the way in which we can choose to please or displease those we love and who love us. God says, I adore you. I made you. Later, he says, I came to give my life for you. And the issue for all of us is, are we willing to live to please him who gave us life? And God says, actually, obedience is the key to being fully human. Our freedom 
as it were, to try to gain all knowledge, to be masters of the universe, must be limited by our desire to please him. That's my first point. My second point, it's not good to be alone. Uh, It actually says for man, but of course since man was the only one that was created at that moment, what it really means, it's not good for humanity, it's not good for anyone to be alone. Now remember the context in which this is said. The incredibly beautiful world. Now I don't know whether you're a tropical island person or whether you are a mountain person for your holiday, but imagine your dream holiday location. And there you are, surrounded by the beauty and the wonder of all creation. The flora, the fauna, the animals around you. Imagine yourself on the tropical island, the heat of the sun, the lapping of the beach, the the water on the beach, the dolphins jumping, the monkeys even bringing you bananas to eat, or whatever they do. Tropical fruit on the trees. Imagine yourself, in in contrast, if you are the mountain person, the rugged beauty, the sharp crags, the wind, the wide views, your four-legged friend beside you, and a friendly bear wandering along. But in both places, now imagine you suddenly wake up to the fact that as a human being, you are there alone. While you appreciate the wonder of the world and all God has created, something is missing. That's exactly the story that's being told in Genesis chapter 2. And Adam realizes a woman is missing. No one who would really be like him, no one who would really be his soul mate, with whom he could converse as an equally created being by the living God. And so it is that God created woman. And I'm not saying to be fully human, you have to have, be married to someone of the opposite sex. I'm not saying that here. I, you cannot, we treasure people who are not married in the church. Singleness is not a sin. <laughs> Single people have an enormous amount to offer the community of God's people. But none of us, married or single, can actually be fully human without entering into deep soulmate relationships. And it's that type of relationship that I'm talking about here. And in church history, this has often been provided for by Christian communities of numbers of single people living together, often in monastic uh, way with patterns and rhythms of life and prayer, of caring the land and serving God in mission as well. And, And I believe actually God is inviting us as a church, locally and nationally, to get away a little bit from our cosy 20th century emphasis on the nuclear family and actually embracing a much wider cross-section of the culture in which we live. God places, it says in Psalm 68, those who are alone in families. I forgot or I realized I changed the order of my slides uh, um, our next door neighbours, that is our daughter and son-in-law, had a new member of the family at this last two weeks, a little cat. They were delighted. 
You, did you notice that he had to, Adam has to name them all? I mean, imagine trying to name all the, all, all the animals, elephants and giraffes and platypuses and things like that. Naming an animal is very difficult. They took a long time to name this one Georgie, and then I didn't know whether it was a male or female. <laughs> but it's not good from anyone not to have a soulmate. God says more than that. I will give you a suitable helper. Now, this is an interesting text, and it's caused quite a lot of tension and difficulty for some people. I believe very badly misinterpreted over many years to uh, actually uh, allow some men, or to, uh, when I say allow, which they have wrongly interpreted to give them superiority in the kingdom of God. Let's just think about what it means to be a suitable helper. The Hebrew phrase is edar kenedal. I'm not sure whether I've even pronounced that right. Forgive me, my Hebrew is not what it used to be, and what it used to be was never any good anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the two words here, first of all, kineda, is, is translated as suitable. What it actually means is someone exactly, an exactly corresponding counterpart. It refers to standing opposite to, which is why I've chose a picture of face to face in this manner. Not greater, not lesser. Not a subordinate assistant or a leader. An equal one who complements the other. That's what suitable means. There's no hierarchy here. Secondly, the word eza, which means tr helper. And often in the Western world, when we s think of the word helper, we think of somebody who, who is inferior, who makes a task easier, but whose presence is not really necessary to accomplish it. In the Bible... This is the only place where the word Ezra is used of a human being. Every other place, it's used of God. You remember Psalm 121? I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. In other words, if this is a helper, like God is a helper, this is a stronger than I am. Oh, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? This is one without whom I cannot live my life. This is one without whom I would be defeated by my enemies because it's normally in the context of battle that God is referred to as a helper. A suitable helper means one actually complementary in every way and without whom I would be defeated in my life. I need my wife. She is a life saver. And it's out of a rib. What a lovely sort of picture. You know, you know uh, the Bible was propagated through storytelling. Most people were illiterate, but, but they could know the Bible through storytelling. That's why I began by saying, do you love great story? This is a great story, isn't it? No one forgets this sort of imagery, making a woman out of a man's rib. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on this passage, says, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. 
Next. Oh, it takes a whole bit. No, no, no. Sex is for heterosexual marriage. Now, this is where we move from identity to sexuality. In my understanding, if we under, get our understanding of our identity first being people made in the image of God, created to love God and created to be in right relationship with each other, and our relationship in every way, our freedom in every way, somehow being circumscribed by an obedience to God, then it, we move from identity to gender and sexuality. And this is where, in our, difficult, our world, it gets a little bit more difficult. Because we have moved out of that understanding of being created first for God and secondly for relationship with each other in obedience to a God who loves us, we actually have begun to think we will do our own thing. We live with a dominant philosophy of what people are calling expressive individualism. What that means is I do what I think is right. To discover myself, I, I make my own choices. And those choices are made on the basis of my feelings. My feelings have become deified. And only when I express my feelings am I truly myself. My truth is my truth because it is true to me. And we live in a post-truth society. So to say that actually there's a higher person and a higher call than that, which, to, which, to whom I become obedient, that's very difficult for people raised with a philosophy of expressive individualism. Now, you got tired of my voice. I, I said to Anne, it's at this moment that I could do with you as a suitable helper to take over, but she's not been very well this week, so I have to turn to somebody else to help me. I'm going to turn to a woman. I'm going to turn to a friend who is a fellow trustee of New Wine who spoke courageously at, during the debate at Synod um, for the orthodox position of the church and distanced herself from the rest of the College of Bishops in doing so. So if we could watch this video, then this will speak a little bit into this area of heterosexual marriage. Do I turn that on? I think I do, don't I? Jilduff yeah. 050, Bishop of Lancaster. We wish the bishops would talk about sex. That's what my group said yesterday. Really? Bishops have been teased for talking about sex too much. But hang on, we had six days to work through the implications of six years of LLF. Have we actually talked about sex? Or did something a little bit ambiguous slip through and evolve in a press spotlight? Just a suggestion in a small grey box. Did God really say sex is for marriage? Hang on, what's the basis for changing 2,000 years of Christian teaching expressed in scripture? So sex is now, and I quote the suggestion on page 8, for faithful, fruitful relationships. Christian teaching about sex has always been at odds with culture, especially New Testament culture. And for all my adult life, the Christian view on sex has been able to step with my friends and my colleagues. And that doesn't make the Christian faith necessarily unattractive. One church leader, one of our mainstream churches, ran a series on sex and sexuality recently in his morning services, including that sex is for marriage between a man and a woman. And two young women came to faith through this. And they said, this is weird. We've never heard it before. But if this is what Jesus calls for, then we're in. 
Most of my ministry has been in deprived urban areas, and local women my age were astonished that I believe that sex is a marriage. You mean I'm worth it. Sex is about intimacy and relationships, and relationships make up the fabric of life and society, and that's why sex is so important, and why talking about it is so important. A senior journalist from the BBC said to me the other day, a brilliant thing about the Church of England is that you dare to have the conversation that many other faiths would love to have, and you do it in public. That has been the gift of LLF. Let's not lose that in a last minute rush. Our Christian ethics on sex speak so preciously into our culture that is craving intimacy and worth, a culture that can squeeze out the dignity of children and the value of family life. Yes, of course, Christian beliefs look strange at first glance. Jesus' death on the cross makes no sense at all until you realize the seismic power of his death. Jesus was radically welcoming, and where that has not been the case, we absolutely need to repent. And yet he had such crazy high standards if you signed up for following him to the cross. If you look at a woman lustfully, I'll fill in the blanks. You, te you are teaching human precepts as doctrines, says Jesus in our gospel reading yesterday. And that is why I cannot vote for this motion and did not vote for this motion. This suggestion in a little grey box on page eight would be a seismic shift in Christian teaching. It would distance LGBTQI plus Christians living faithful celibate lives. It would distance mainstream Christian denominations, never mind the freedom of conscience for other faiths. It will be distancing the majority of the Anglican community who seem to be rather silent in our discernment. But finally, one plus about being on Synod is... And I'll have to tell you that another day. <laughs> My last point, and then, is this. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Shame has no place here. Now, I think, I don't know, as I look at you and the average age here, whether you're carrying still shame over sexual thoughts or activity in your life. It will be very, very different at the next service. Many of them will be carrying still great pain over having been sexually abused or over choices that they've made, which they know has damaged, have damaged their development as human beings and their understanding of their sexuality. To them, I will offer what we can offer as believers in Jesus. That is full forgiveness and a washing away of shame. To you, I ask for your prayers for them. For there is no one that can deliver from that only Jesus. I became a Christian carrying such shame at the age of 17. It was not until in my 30s that I discovered that under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, not only could I know that my guilt had been taken away by the death of Jesus on the cross, but also my shame could be taken away and I could be given the power to forgive myself even as I had previously forgiven others. So please, Pray. Pray for the next generations. And pray for the Church of England to hold its nerve. And if it cannot hold its nerve, 
please pray for those of us who want to have an environment where Jesus and his teaching, as it has always been understood, which is offering a different sexual ethics and understanding of human identity than our culture does, that we will actually find a freedom in a new ecclesiastical structure which will enable us to prosper, to flourish, and to continue to bring the best story to those who are only being told a bad story by the culture of our day. I'm going to finish before we sing our last song with the anthropologist Margaret Mead's comments. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Shall we stand? And we're going to sing a hymn which um, we, Anne and I, sang at our wedding. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And I'm inviting you, as we sing it, to consecrate yourself afresh to the Lord God who made you, to an understanding that obedience to him is actually the key to all human freedom and everything else that I've said subsequently in my sermon. Lord, thank you that it's you that breathed the breath of life into us. It's you that breathed it again by your spirit when we gave our lives to follow you. We were born again into your kingdom. And with the breath of our lips and the strength of our bodies, with the thinking of our minds and the longings of our hearts, we say, take our lives afresh today.